Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums of all time. And today's album is 1984 by Van Halen. It was not listed on the 2003 Rolling Stone Top 500 list. <laughs> hey, Bill, don't, don't hurt yourself, man. Bill's doing some, some uh, DLR kicks in the background. <laughs> Gotta oh, get my Lord. up. <laughs> Dude, we're going on vacation in two days. You can't be in traction <sighs> while we're in Arizona, man. 1984 was not listed on the Rolling Stone 2003 list. It was not listed on the Rolling Stone 2012 list, nor was it listed on the Rolling Stone 2020 list. This is a travesty. A miscarriage of justice, I say, sir. Well, they had 20 years to get it right. So Rolling Stone seems pretty convinced that this isn't amongst the 500 best albums of all time. Well, I disagree. All right. Well, you've got uh, a show to make your case, sir. That I will do. <laughs> well, then why don't we begin with our personal histories? Um, usually I go first here, but how about you make your case, Counselor Fraser? 1984, followed by 5150, and two other albums by Diamond Dave, uh, Eat em and Smile, and Skyscraper, were legitimately the soundtrack of my teenage years, okay? So if if I had a montage film of my age 13 to 17, I would splice it to tracks from this album, 5150, Eat em and Smile and Skyscraper. That was my jam. Like I, I had the cassettes, I wore them out. You know, you know when you listen to a cassette so much that you warp it and it like, it doesn't play right? I actually had to buy this cassette again. Now I think we're getting to the root cause of why 35 years have gone by before we realized we could talk about music. Maybe <laughs> this, this DLR Van Halen obsession was burned on my brain. I was just like, well, I can't talk to that guy about music. <laughs> But my personal, and I, I joke because I actually like Van Hagar. I mean, Van Halen. Van Halen is okay. 5150, that's a great album. I, I would have loved yeah. to have done this show on 5150. 5150 is an awesome album. I will gladly do it another season. So if I, sign me up for doing a 5150 episode. Love that album. Today we're talking about 1984. Well, so as far as why Van Halen just didn't click in for me is... I was never a guitar hero guy, and I don't mean the video game. I just mean I didn't get super excited by guys who could do these extended solos and whatever. I mean, like, I guess I appreciated their their dexterity and creativity, but it just wasn't th something that got me excited. And perfect illustration of that, as, as you well know, and our uh, friend Bernadette, and who was our fourth for the time Jamie. I fell asleep? J J and Jamie. Jamie. Madison Square so, Garden. Yeah, tell, tell the, the story. It, Madison Square Garden. It was the OU812 tour. We have seats, probably not great seats, but like decent seats. And Eddie's in the middle of his guitar solo. I'm like in heaven. 
I turn and, you know, expect to see Tony smiling or something, mouth open, drool coming out. He's asleep, like stone cold asleep. asleep. Yeah. Not like nodding off, whatever. I was out because 10 minutes in, it's just like the stairway to heaven. It's just like enough already. Dude, dude, Eddie's playing eruption and you fall asleep. I mean, for goodness freaking sake. So, well, anyway, so uh, to each his own, but those, that's our personal histories, right? That it is. Okay, so next segment is the listener comments. So I've got a couple of comments spanning a couple of different shows. So uh, going back to our Taylor Swift Red show, Jesse at the College of New Jersey was a lifelong Taylor fan, and she was expecting that, oh, yeah, these old guys, they're not going to have anything that I don't know. She didn't know a single thing that we had for the something I don't know. All so, right. Yeah. All right. We did all right. I'm, yeah. I'm proud of us. Pat, Pat's on the back. Um, Art in Hoboken, he said that his crew referred to Led Zeppelin four as four symbols. So that wasn't a title that we not not Zoso, not the untitled, not, not Runes. Uh, yeah. Yep. So yeah. four symbols. I hadn't, and in all in the research I had done, I hadn't come across four symbols either. I, so I, I I agree. Yeah, I hadn't seen that either. So good job, Art and crew. And then finally, Ari in Westchester County requested. We got our, I don't know if this is our first, but this is the first that I remember. Request this show on the Native Tongues Collective. Sign me up. De La Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, The Jungle Brothers. That Native Tongues movement was phenomenal. There was a lot of amazing things going on in hip hop in the 90s. All right, cool. So do I hear then that maybe season three will be doing some De La? So I think we need to do De La because as of March 3rd, three is the magic number. De La Soul is available to stream anywhere you listen. So we were very hesitant to do anything De La Soul until they were on streaming. But now that they are, I'm all in. All right. So Ari from Westchester County, you might be getting your wish in season three. Uh, Bonus uh, request was from Burtis in Hunterdon County. (laughs) Wanted to know when we're going to do Black Sheep. (laughs) So Burtis, I think you're going to be waiting. (laughs) I think, yeah, uh, I think I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> so those are our listener comments. All right. So everybody, we would love to hear from you. Thank you to those who have reached out and given us feedback. You can email us, bill at bntexcellent.com, tony at bntexcellent.com. Our social media, we're Bill and Tony Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. And we're bntexcellent on Facebook. So please find us, reach out to us. We love to hear from you. We really do. It's such a blast. All right, Tony, I know you're chomping at the bit here. Why don't you share an update and some news for our listeners? We were so excited to be doing a show on Van Halen 1984 that we decided to wrangle up some bonus content for you. So next week, we're going to be sharing an episode that we recorded with author Greg Renoff. Greg wrote the book Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And it was a lot of fun talking to Greg about Van Halen. He is so knowledgeable, and I, I think I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. We're super excited for everyone to hear the interview, but we do have some business to take care of first. So, Bill, can you tell us about what was going on in 1984? Oh, Tom, we were 13. I had my half shirt on. <laughs> literally, literally, I had you know I had the you know half shirt sitting by the pool with my Sony Walkman, listening to 1984. 1984 was a leap year, okay? And Ronald Reagan, we've talked about 84 before, so I'm not going to go too deep. Ronald Reagan's the president. He beats Mondale on a landslide. The economy was really coming back from a recession. 
the Cold War is in full swing. There's a lot of tension between Russia and the U.S. The Soviet Union boycotts the L.A. Olympics after we had boycotted the Moscow Olympics. The AIDS epidemic is really continuing to spread and awareness of it is growing significantly. It's in the media a lot more. It's front and center. And in science, DNA fingerprinting was developed in 1984. A lot was going on in sports. We've talked about it before. Winter Olympics in Sarajevo, Summer Olympics in LA. You've got the Super Bowl where the Raiders beat the Redskins and Marcus Allen rushes for almost 200 yards. The World Series where Kirk Gibson's two home runs lead the Tigers over to the Padres and the Celtics with Larry Bird as the MVP beat the Lakers in the finals. All right. So then that takes us to the movies. So, you know, we've talked about these movies before, but um, the top five movies were Ghostbusters was number one. Then we've got uh, Beverly Hills Cop. And then we've got number three. I'm not going to do Axel F. I'm not going to. I thought you weren't going to do it. Uh, number three, and this one is is actually relevant today in, in a weird way. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It It, it is. It is. It's very relevant. So, uh, well, why do you say? Oh, no, go ahead. I don't want to steal oh. your thunder. You, you're going you're gonna to talk. No, well, um, for me, it's because I was watching everything everywhere all at once. I'm saying. I, exactly. I'm saying, dang, that guy looks familiar. Short round. And sure enough, short rounds, he's one of the uh, you know major players in that movie, and he does a wonderful job so he won the golden globe for best supporting actor oh did he oh good he for did him. he was he was he, it was a wonderful speech it really was ah i didn't i didn't see it because the globes are sketchy at best but uh well i just i just saw the highlight when they showed him so excited and i had to listen it was it was cool he did such a great job in that movie he you know he might have been the heart of that movie, even though, you know, clearly uh, Michelle Yao and the and the daughter, you know, were the stars of the movie and J- JLC stole the movie. But he did a great job. It, well, and just a phenomenal movie. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Great, great movie. Uh, number four was Gremlins, which I still haven't seen. You haven't seen Gremlins? Mm-mm, no. And then number five, you know, The Karate Kid, which, you know, even if you're not watching Cobra Kai, The Karate Kid both doesn't hold up and is great anyway. Karate Kid's awesome. Yeah, that's why I mean. it, it's awesome. I mean, it, it's, you know, th- there's a lot of problems, but it's, it's, it's so great. 80s though. It's yeah. so 80s. Like the Karate Kid is the 80s. And does Liz Shu look just as great now at 58 as she did when she was, you know, in the Karate Kid? She doesn't look 58 like yeah. at, at all. She, at all. It's, so. She's nuts. She's great. Amazing. All right. So, Tone, you covered the movies. Let me cover TV. There was a lot going on in TV in 1984, and it really starts with two big primetime soap operas. First, were you let me ask let me ask you the question. If I say 80s primetime soap opera, Tone, which one do you go to? Which is your go to 80s primetime soap opera? Uh, I didn't know you were going to ask me this, but this is a great prompt. So the answer has to be Dynasty. But. The weird thing is, is that as a young, younger kid, so not quite 84, but like maybe 82, 83, I wanted to be JR. I mean, that's what I would tell my parents when they, oh, what do you want to be? I want to be JR. So, um, and, and we lived in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time. We even did a road trip down to uh, Texas and visited the actual um, South Fork Ranch where the uh, show is supposed to be based. And uh, spoiler, 
the real South Fork Ranch is like 2,500 square feet. <laughs> I mean, it's got acres and acres, but it's it's a small ranch. It's not like, you know, this, you know, 4,000, 5,000 or however big it was on the show. Uh, so I was a big fan of Dallas. Don't get me wrong, but Dynasty was absolutely my jam. You? Before I answer that question, I have to ask you, are you team Crystal or are you team Alexis? Alexis. Come on. Crystal. <laughs> Crystal's such a wet, wet rag. Wet I don't blanket. Know. Wet blanket. Thanks. Uh, Crystal. Who, I mean, uh, who, was anybody team Crystal? Who's not team, team I Alexis? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. So, all right. So, obviously, the two big shows were Dynasty and Dallas. And I would say Dynasty, 100% Dynasty. It was definitely the one I would see more. I mean, I remember watching the Who Shot JR Dallas episode. Like, I remember where I was. I was at my, staying at my grandmother's house. My sister and I were sleeping over my grandmother's house. And well, my grandmother let us, you know, watch TV late. And I was watching Dallas. And I wanted to see Who Shot JR. And I had no idea what the heck was going on. But yeah, Dynasty. Not on this list. But really, really important for me was the Dallas spinoff Knott's Landing. Really? Huge Knott's Landing fan. Because first of all, Alec Baldwin, that was his like first time he really popped because he was like the young, he was the the young preacher who, you know. (laughs) I didn't even know he was on Knott's Landing. So (laughs) that's where he started. Young preacher. And, you know, you can figure out the rest of his story from there. Um and then one of my very earliest crushes, because like I'm talking 12, 13 years old, Lisa Hartman, who would later go on to marry uh, Clint Black. So Lisa Hartman Black, they I think they're still together. Um, she debuted on that show. And oh, my gosh, definitely <laughs> one of my if, you know, Olivia Newton-John and Lisa Hartman, like first two crushes. So Knott's Landing, Dallas spinoff. She's no CJ from Matt Houston. I'm sorry. So, you know. Never watched Matt Houston. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So number three, The Cosby Show. Obviously, big show. And that was the debut for the year for The Cosby Show. So the start of like a big run for NBC of kind of owning that Thursday night television. 60 Minutes, number four. And then Family Ties, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal show with Michael Jay Fox playing Alex P. Keaton. Other TV shows of note from 1984, there's Night Court, which just got rebooted this year. Have, yep. have you checked it out? I haven't checked it out yet. I have. I watched a couple and it's worth checking out. It's, it's you know, if you're looking for something kind of just mindless, funny, it was enjoyable. Uh, and then we've got Murder, She Wrote. We've got Miami Vice and Airwolf. With who? I don't know. Wasn't that Jan Michael Vincent? I don't know. Is he? Oh, I'm sure it was. It was Jan Michael Vincent. Jan Michael Vincent is still in the popular. Is he? Uh, yes, because he's huge on like he's brought up all the time on Rick and Morty. Oh, like Jan Michael Vincent is brought up all the time on on Rick. So and Morty. suppose I don't watch Rick and Morty. Is Jan Michael Vincent still huge? Yes. Okay. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. That's enough about TV. So we go to the year in music. So we've already covered this year a couple of times, so we'll kind of breeze through this. There were only five number one albums in 1984. Thriller was number one for the first 15 weeks. Footloose, uh, the soundtrack, was number one for the next 10. Huey Lewis and Sports was number one for a week. Born in the USA for four weeks. Purple Rain, 
came in for a long 22-week run, and then uh, Bruce returned to the top uh, for the end of the year. So those were your number one albums for 1984. Anything else you want to note there? I think the the main things I would go are just kind of the, the, the ones on the periphery. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Billy Ocean, and Hall & Oates' Big Bang Boom. So those, those would be the ones that I would go to. Check them out. And then we've got our top 10 singles, When Doves Cry, What's Love Got to Do With It, Say, 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 Footloose, Against All Odds. And then coming in at number six is Jump from Van Halen. Number seven is Hello uh, from Lionel Richie. Hello. <laughs> uh, then we've got Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes, Ghostbusters by uh, Ray Parker Jr. from the soundtrack, and Karma Chameleon by Culture Club. Some other notables were uh, Jump for My Love by the Pointer Sisters. So Jump, having a big year. You've got 99 Luft Balloons uh, at number 28. Uh, Borderline by Madonna. One of my three favorite Madonna songs is Borderline. And Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good, good song. Good song. Good, not great. No, it's a good no, song. I like Madonna. it. I like Madonna. Madonna's awesome. Uh, number 49 is, uh, this is an important song to, um, some of our friends from, uh, Manalpin, Shannon, let the music play. Let the music play. You won't get away. Apparently this is like one of the early songs from that whole sort of New York, New Jersey. Dance club music. Absolutely. Miami club music scene. Uh, so let the music play. Great song. Still hear it all the time. And then Thriller. This one was weird. Thriller from Michael Jackson, number 78. You might wonder, well, why is that such a big deal? Thriller came out in 1982. And the song is the number 78 song from 1984. So, boy, talk about a lasting impact, right? Crazy run. Crazy run. Yep. All right. So that's the year in music. All right. So, Tom, why don't we talk a little bit about 1984, the album. 1984 was released on January 9th, 1984, and it was their sixth studio album. It took them about four months to record, and it was recorded at 5150 Studios. The producer was Ted Templeman, who's worked with Van Halen on all of their albums to that point. And it was engineered by Don Landy, who'd also worked with Van Halen on previous albums. And he used a technique called varus speeding, which altered the pitch and tempo of some of the tracks, which you can kind of hear on some of the tracks. The classic original Van Halen lineup, David Lee Roth on lead vocals, Eddie Van Halen on guitars, keyboards, and backing vocals, Michael Anthony on bass, and really an underrated background vocal singer. Michael Anthony is, is really underappreciated. Very good harmony. And, yep, and Alex Van Halen on drums and percussion. And I'll just mention that this album is very synthesizer heavy, and the synthesizer playing a big part in this album um, I wanted to just mention that they actually used a special synthesizer on this album, the Oberheim OBXA synthesizer. And it was kind of a crazy new synthesizer that had a lot of new capabilities. And it was actually something that wound up being used a lot. And it was used by artists like Prince, Queen, Rush, Depeche Mode, and Madonna. So what I found interesting about this and doing the research was that, you know, not knowing the background of the band, but having a sense that, you know, or, or coming at it from the assumption that, well, Eddie's the guitar hero and uh, David, you know, is more into like the pop songs because, you know, he, he likes to do the covers of the old songs. So I kind of thought that maybe that, you know, that that breakup and that friction in the band was 
was Dave wanting to move more pop and it couldn't have been more opposite. Dave hated the synthesizers. It was, it was Eddie. Yeah, Eddie was wanted to, Eddie. to bring the synthesizers in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that was, that was a surprising thing to, uh, to learn. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about that push and pull with the, uh, between Dave and Ed and, and all that uh, as we get into the track. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the album art? So this is an iconic 80s album cover. You've got the picture of the angel baby smoking a cigarette against the background. And it's basically a striking image. It's something where, you know, in the UK, they actually had to put a a sticker over the cigarette label because they weren't allowed to show it on the album cover. So it, it was, you know, it was an interesting album cover and it's been parodied a couple times and it's, it's been, you know, something where it's, it's really in the imagery of, uh, of the 80s. I know we talk about memorable album covers and and that's more relevant in the older ones because that's things that have been cemented over decades. But when I think about the 80s, I can't think of too many more memorable album covers than this one. No, it's it's a standout album cover. And it's like uh, when I think of the Van Halen album covers, I can only really picture two of them sure. perfectly. Yeah, 5150. This one and 5150. All right, cool. Thanks a lot for that, Bill. So I'm going to get to uh, my something you might not know. I'm going to talk a little bit about 5150 Studios, which you mentioned uh, earlier where they recorded this album. So 5150 Studios was built prior to the making of this album, and it was just Eddie's garage, basically. He wanted a place where he could lay down better demo tracks because before he was doing it like in his kitchen or something and, and they were kind of crummy and, and he wanted to do better demos. So he started building out a studio space, but then they, him and Don Landy just started to get a little bit, you know, more into it. And they ended up building out a technically good studio space. It was small, but it had great equipment. It didn't have new equipment, but it had really uh, good equipment. Their mixing board was one that had been used previously by the Beach Boys and the Mamas and the Papas, amongst other artists. So they really had some cool tech in there, but it was a really small space. And it was really initially just supposed to be for demos. But maybe Ed had something else in the back of his mind, because what was happening was he wanted more control. And Ted and, and Dave, they like to work fast and really run through albums and Ed wanted to take his time and and build things out and by recording in his garage he was able to have a little bit more control he was able to keep them out so um, that's the origin of 5150 is there anything you want to add to uh, that no I I think you gave a, a great background of 5150 and and it's really just so instrumental to everything they made from that point forward effectively like it, it was a huge part of their process uh, for van halen the band but you for know, van halen the band I, yes the thing is is like the creation of that studio really was what precipitated the breakup of the classic lineup yeah absolutely it was the tipping point 100 percent. yes all right so that's mine what do you got all right, I got a few for us today, Tone. So, so this this is like my sweet spot. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with a couple today. I'm gonna start with Eddie and Alex. And some of this you might know, you might not know, but I'm gonna start with Eddie and Alex. So Eddie and Alex were actually born in Amsterdam. Uh, they their father was Dutch and their mother was Indonesian, and they moved to California in I think it was '62 and they were seven and nine years old 
and they didn't speak English when they came to the US. Wild. So they were seven and nine years old and they did not speak English at all. And they were really discriminated against as, as mixed race children. So they had a tough time when they, when they came to California in the 60s. And their dad was a jazz musician and he taught them to play piano. And they learned classic music and they, they learned the Beatles. They learned you know, the Stones and they got into playing different instruments. And originally, Eddie was the drummer. Eddie had drums and Alex was the guitarist. Really? And what happened was Eddie caught Alex secretly playing his drum kit. And he's like, you're better than me. And they switched. And so Eddie became the guitarist and Alex became the really? drummer. Really? Oh, that's yep. wild. Um, the other thing I uh, came across was that Eddie always wanted to be a sax player too. Yep. And I, but I, I don't know if he actually ever tried it or not. I, I'm not, I, I couldn't really find too much on that. All right. So that's a little bit about them as a background. Let, now let's talk about the start of the band a bit. So, so do you know anything about when Van Halen was first signed? Have, have you heard, heard any of the backstory on this? No, not a thing. All right. So in 1977, an artist you might've heard before, he goes by the name of Gene Simmons was in a club in LA and he hears this young band playing and he goes backstage and says, I want to sign you guys. You're amazing. I, I'm, I'm going to sign you personally and I'm going to convince my bandmates and our label that we're going to produce you. He, he flies them out to New York and this band by the, by the way is Van Halen. He flies them out to New York. He does a demo tape with them and then he proceeds to beg his bandmates in kiss <laughs> and the re the recording management, the, you know, the re recording studio and management that kiss works with to sign and produce Van Halen. And he can't convince any of them to sign and produce Van Halen. So he tore up their contract and let them go. And then shortly later they signed with Warner brothers. That seems so impossible to believe that kiss, you know, at the peak of their powers, Gene Simmons couldn't get a band signed to the label, even just as a favor. I've read the articles, but I've also listened to Gene Simmons interviews about it. And his revisionist story about it basically goes this way, that it wasn't that they didn't see the talent in Van Halen. It was that they didn't want Gene distracted. And they basically said, if Gene is focused on this band, Kiss isn't going anywhere. We got to build the Kiss brand, not the Van Halen brand. Let somebody else sign those guys. So it was more, it was less about the fact that they didn't like Van Halen and more about the fact that they didn't want distraction for Gene. Hey, I don't know how the business works. That does feel a little revisionist history. I mean, they couldn't sign them and just. <laughs> I find it some, mind blowing. But... You know, <laughs> they could have had somebody else, you know, it's not like well, Gene was going to manage them, right? He could have, they could have signed them and said, okay, yeah, but we're going to hook them up with this producer or that producer. I, well, they, the the way that he says is like they were worried that he was going to get too involved and want to manage them, and then, 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 and you know, so. But he right. makes a big deal about it. I could have had Van Halen money, and obviously, you know, he doesn't need yeah. Van Halen money. Um, all right, so that's a couple. I've got two more for you. Tapping. Okay, we're going to talk about tapping when we get to the tracks. Obviously, a lot of synthesizers on this album, but tapping is the technique that is probably something Eddie Van Halen is most famous for. It's a technique where you're basically playing the guitar with two hands on the frets and you're tapping the frets effectively. And when you hear about tapping, a lot of people attribute tapping to Eddie Van Halen and he's the creator of it, the pro progenitor of it and whatnot. 
Well, that's not true. So in the something you might not know, Eddie was definitely a big contributor to making tapping more popular, but Jimmy Page tapped. He tapped on Heartbreaker. The lead guitarist for Genesis tapped. Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top tapped on songs like LaGrange and Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers. And others like Joe Satriani said, I was tapping at the same time Eddie was, and I'd never heard him play. So there were a lot of people who gravitated towards that. And candidly, there were jazz guitarists back in the 50s that were doing it as well. So it wasn't something that was that was created by Eddie, but it was something that Eddie obviously made famous and popular. And then the last one is just, I always get a chuckle from this one. Do you ever, do you ever hear about the uh, the Van Halen tour rider? No, not, uh, not them specifically, no. All right. So Van Halen is famous for their tour rider. And they had this huge, long list of demands and, and somewhere buried in, I don't know, page 12 or something like that or whatever. The band basically outlined how at every concert, they required a bowl of M&Ms backstage and that it could absolutely not contain brown M&Ms. They also demanded 12 Reese's peanut butter cups and 12 assorted Dan and yogurts. But if they sh- in the rider, they said if they showed up and there were brown M&Ms in the bowl, the venue could forfeit and basically the contract was null and void. Subsequent interviews that I've, I've heard David Lee talk about it, basically it was a check to see the diligence of the promoters. So they put it in their rider basically to see if they got backstage and they saw that brown M&Ms were in the bowl, they knew they needed to double check and triple check everything they asked for. If they got backstage and they saw there were no brown M&Ms in the bowl, they said, you know what? They followed this contract pretty well. You know, we're still going to check, but it doesn't have to be the, you know, double, triple check. So, you know, when, when they go to the, the sound setup and everything, they, they could have a little bit more confidence of what, what was actually there. That's actually shockingly smart. You know, it's, it's basically an early warning system. Yeah. I thought it was a brilliant strategy. So and I've heard other artists do it as well, but they were the first ones that I've heard that did it. And, and they might not have been the first, but they were the first ones I'd heard. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Anything else? No, I think we'll, uh, we'll move on to the, the tracks themselves and talk there. So then we've got nine songs on this album. And again, a, a point that we've been hammering over the last two seasons, 33 minutes and 17 seconds. Just an amazingly concise album. Just perfection. I haven't listened to this album in 30 years, but in the last week or so, I've listened to this album 20 times and I've never gotten to the end and said, Oh, that's it. Yep. And, you know, I love Taylor, but I don't need 65 minutes of your album. You know, figure it out, get it down, have some self-control. Yeah, I, I, I love the 30 to 45 minute album that's got a story to tell. It's knit together well and all the tracks belong there. So track one is 1984. It's a one minute instrumental. And it's really actually it's almost like a uh, a mission statement, if you will. You know, it's not that they'd never used any synthesizers before, but this is essentially a synthesizer intro. It sets and, the stage that this is what this album is going to be about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great intro. Like, it's, it's a great synthesizer intro. I mean, it, it's a sweeping, epic intro, and then you get the guitars at the end. It's a great intro. Indeed. So it's telling us what we need to know about what we're about to experience. And then you go from that one minute intro. Well, let me, before we go to the next song, let let me just say that, you know, you go back to 1984 and there were not a lot of rock bands using synthesizers at the time. Like this is none. 
there were, yes, almost none. You were not getting a rock band to use a synthesizer, especially in the way that they did on this album. So this is really groundbreaking in what it, what it brought to music. Yeah. And I was reading that after the success of 1984, the music stores or the guitar stores really, which primarily had guitars and drums, all of a sudden had to dedicate significant floor space to keyboards and synthesizers. And a lot of that is due to the Eddie in this album. Yep. So we go from 1984, that musical intro to jump the second track on this album, which is just like the upbeat anthem and of, of the year, you know, basically it's this just crazy high energy song that you've got, you know, emblazoned in your brain, David Lee Roth doing the crazy, you know, karate kick singing the song, right? I mean, like how, when you hear the song, do you see David Lee doing that kick? I do. Of course. And the funny thing is, is that David Lee and uh, Templeman, the producer, hated it when they first heard uh, the music for it because it just wasn't Van Halen. It was an unused clip, I believe, right? I mean, it was it was something where they, like, I think Eddie had been playing with something and like it was an unused clip and they were listening to it and going, what do we do with this? Or something, something along those lines. So then when he uh, composed the music for Jump and presented it as something that he wanted on the album, you know, they're saying, we don't like this. And, and I think Templeman even said something along the lines of, you just made like a song that's going to be played at every baseball park in America. And sure enough, it was. And it probably still is well according to daryl hall and john oates supposedly eddie said that he kind of copied the synth part from kiss on my list and worked it into into jump really yeah oh wow that's a uh, early voices 1982 hall and oates uh, a favorite of uh rick and mine so i gotta go back and listen to that i think you can hear it there's there's like little nuances to it it's pretty cool if you imagine like the the uh, electronic keyboard of kiss on my list but then throw in some heavy synth <laughs> exactly all right <laughs> Love it. So this was their, um, obviously, their most successful single. It was their only number one single. And like you were saying, it was just an enormous hit. So, you know, so Ed is holed up and he's working on this for weeks. And then finally comes out, you know, Dave doesn't like it. Ted doesn't like it. But they, they agree. Okay, fine. We'll do it. And do you know how uh, Dave, you know, the process by which Dave ended up writing the lyrics for this as well as a lot of his other songs i've seen some stuff and i'm not sure how true it is but it's it's definitely kind of an interesting story so go ahead it, it makes <laughs> go ahead, uh, <laughs> it reminded me of lincoln lawyer um, i didn't see the movie but i watched the tv show and uh, lincoln lawyer he's a lawyer and he has, hires a driver usually an ex-con to drive him around while he like studies his case files well supposedly dave wrote the lyrics to jump while he was being driven around by a roadie in one of his cars and they're driving around L.A. and they've got the radio on and, and they hear a news report of a man threatening to jump off a building. And they kind of swing by and they check out the scene and and Dave is inspired. And that's how we got the lyrics to this song. And supposedly he said, go ahead and jump. And that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I hope the guy didn't jump, but I hope the guy didn't jump also. But great song. <laughs> Thank you for the inspiration. <laughs> inspiration comes from a lot of places. You, know, you so. never know, right? You never know. Yeah. So uh, anything else on Jump? 
just an awesome, awesome song. You know, the, the, the guitar riff is famous. The synthesizers are worked in a lot. So it's very synthesizer heavy. You know, you go from the synthesizer from 84 in, into the synthesizer in Jump and synthesizer with the guitar work together very tightly. It's, it's really kind of the model for this album. You go from synthesizer to synthesizer guitar overlay, and it's really the model for the album. You know, I had to listen closely because the synthesizer is so prominent and and so catchy and so such an earworm that I couldn't I actually forget that there's guitar in the song. Yep. That takes us to track three. And track three is a classic Van Halen song. It's another hit single from Van Halen um, that didn't go as high as jump, but it reached top 20 and it's Panama. Any any thoughts on Panama? To me, it's classic David because it's nonsensical and oh, come on, you're killing me. And a free, but but a freaking blast! It's a blast, and you know there's a place in the world for just fun rock and roll that's meaningless. It's and, fun rock and, and roll, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's so fun rock and roll. I, I didn't say I didn't mean nonsensical as a as a dig. I just meant like. Like the words themselves don't matter. It's the, the, the delivery. Spoke, the spoken word stuff that he does is so freaking cool. Like, yeah, we're running a little bit hot tonight. I can barely see the road from the heat coming on. I uh, reach down between my legs, ease the seat back. It's so freaking cool. <laughs> well, actually, now that you're uh, doing your DLR, it reminds me of something that I saw, um, you know, talking about his writing process. And um, have you ever heard him uh, or read him talk about his writing process? I, I don't think so. No. So his process is inspired by the boss. Really? But not by the way the boss works. It's inspired by Thunder Road, the lyrics to Thunder Road. He says he quotes Thunder Road when he talks about how he writes. He says, sometimes you just got to roll the wind back and let the wind blow back your hair. And that's why, you know, he's writing songs in the backseat of his car while he's being driven around. He's he's living the Thunder Road life while he's writing uh, lyrics. Well, and but you've got that dichotomy of Eddie with the synthesizers and really getting, you know, taking them in that direction. And and David Lee with the, you know, his childhood idols were. Al Jolson and Louis Prima and Ray Charles. And you can hear, you know, I mean, if you listen to a Louis Prima album, like, I mean, David Lee covered Louis Prima songs on, on his solo albums, you know, after Van Halen, you can hear just the, the, you know, a lot of the spoken word stuff that Louis Prima does is exactly in David Lee Roth's written lyrics. A lot of it. Yeah. And that's really also another cause of that, that, friction because they did a lot of covers on their earlier albums and ed hated them because he said i want to make my own music and and dave would say well we're van halenizing these songs so we're making them our own and and i think you and i both agree that there is something to that but we're not the songwriters so ed doesn't want to van halenize somebody else's song he wants to write van halen songs it was definitely a lot of push and pull between the two of them. So, so Panama has got just amazing guitar and drum work on it. Like it, Panama is one of those songs for me that is just powerful in the music. I, I, I understand what you're saying about the lyrics and, you know, David, it's David Lee being David Lee with the lyrics, sure. but, but the guitar and drum work on this are just outrageous. 
Yeah. Oh, it, no, it's a fantastic song. And also, um, how about the, uh, do you know anything about the Lamborghini? I, I don't know anything about the Lamborghini. I know about the car, I know about the car, but I didn't know it was a Lamborghini. It's a, so, um, there's a couple of spots in, uh, the musical in, in like the bridge or the instrumentation section where you actually hear, uh, the sound of, uh, engine revving. And it's kind of high pitched and I don't know what uh, Lamborghini is supposed to sound like. So I didn't realize that it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a fine tuned high end sports car. But that whirring engine sound was um, Ed pulling up his Lamborghini to the front of 5150 and they mic'd it up and he just that's started awesome. uh, revving the engine. And that's the sound that you hear in the musical interlude. So I actually thought you were going in a different direction with it. So that's awesome. I did remember that they did something, but I didn't, I didn't know it was Eddie's Lamborghini that they, they recorded. Um, where I thought you were going was what the song is named after was a car that David Lee saw in a race in Vegas called the Panama express. So it, it's, you know, about a car and specifically he saw this car in a race in Vegas and stuck in his head. There you go. Two somethings. Neither of us knew about Panama. Right. There you go. All right. So track four is top Jimmy. He cooks and he swings. He's got the looks top Jimmy. He's the King. I feel like, uh, Top Jimmy could easily have gone on a David Lee Roth uh, solo album. Agreed. Um, But it's, I love David Lee's solo stuff and I love Van Halen stuff. So I, I'm not one to, to say, Oh, that's, that shouldn't be on the, you know, cause I think, you know, there are, there are some, some Van Halen fans that would be like, Oh, that's more David Lee, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I like all of it. So I, I, really love this song and i feel like it's just a it's a fun song it's an upbeat rock song you've got the cool harmonized vocals that's you know michael anthony shines on this song and it's just it's an awesome song yeah i I, similar to panama i didn't mean that as a dig it's it's a great song i and it's not a dig to say that you could imagine this on a david lee roth solo I, album but i really could. no you no you're, no you're right you're spot you're spot on it's just i i know that you know maybe i'm not the prototypical van halen fans i mean some people feel strongly about whether it should or shouldn't be and whether david or, or sammy i like i like them both i like it all so all right so anything else on top jimmy no i think we uh i think we covered top jimmy all right so let's go on to track five drop dead legs i'll tell you this song it wasn't one when I was going into this that I even remembered, but as I was listening to it over and over again, I kept coming to this one. This is a really cool song. It, it, the way that it builds, yeah. it's got it's got this slow groove and mm-hmm. it just builds. It's so cool. It, yeah. It's it's a cool rock song. Yeah, I really like that. And uh, it's kind of a you know talking about how Top Jimmy is a you know a DLR sounding song. This one isn't. This gives you a little bit more of that power, hard rock, heavy metal sound that Top Jimmy doesn't quite give you. And it's just that really cool groove. Do you know the uh, um, inspiration for the lyrics? Uh, I, I don't, but I believe it was something movie starlet some, of some, some sort, but I, don't, I, did, I didn't know specifically who. So apparently David Lee Roth uh, is really into old movies, um, which isn't a surprise given what his musical inclinations are. And he was, has, has this like uh, connection to some like it hot starring Marilyn Monroe. And, but in particular, there's a scene apparently, 
and I train, train station. Movie. Yeah, train, train station. station scene where she's it's one of my walking. top five movies of all time. Some like oh. it hot is one of my top five. Movies oh, okay. Of all time. So then. I'll set it up, but you tell me what you remember about it. Like she's walking next to the train with the violin case. Yep. yep. It's one of the most famous scenes in movie history. <laughs> it's, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon, uh, Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis are like the original bosom buddies, you know, dress, dressing like women to get away from the mob. And they're running to get on this train and Marilyn and they see Marilyn Monroe walking up. You know, you see Jack, Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis dressed like women walking to the train and they see Marilyn Monroe walking and they turn their heads and they watch her walk by. And this is what you hear. She moves. That's just like jello on springs. Must have some sort of built-in motor or something. And all of that happens while you see Marilyn walking away. So you get a picture of her from behind and you very clearly see her and obviously her legs. So Drop Dead Legs is um, inspired by Marilyn and some Like It Hot. Can't, can't say that I'm surprised, but yeah, I, sh- I should have put two and two together on that one. So great song. And speaking of uh, incredibly attractive women, let's go to track six, Hot for Teacher. <laughs> so I, I, I think Hot for Teacher, just, just like I said with Jump, there are things that are just indelibly imprinted on my memory and my brain. When you hear things, you know, sometimes when you, when you see something, you smell something, you hear something, like you get a memory, right? When I hear this song, I instantly go to the music video for it. And I, I can play the music video in my head listening to the song. So when we were listening to the album this week to do prep for this, every single time I was listening to the song, I was playing the music video in my head because I've seen it so many times. And it's such a classic, amazing music video. And the the guitar solo and the drum solo in this in this song are probably my top 10, you know, both solos. I think both solos are top 10 for me in like anything and just just an outrageous song amazing 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 song a fun song makes you laugh makes you smile the video makes you crack up uh, with waldo and the teacher and the little van halen uh you know uh characters the people you know kids that they made like themselves that Mm -hmm. kind of play the van halen characters just just a great video and a great song this album came out at a really good time when mtv wasn't super early it wasn't like the first days of mtv but it was when mtv was already clearly you know an important part of the music business and they embraced it you know some bands didn't want to do it and and, or didn't play along these guys made great videos and i think that it only helped enhance the popularity of these some of these songs Oh, 100%. I mean, I think this this song in particular took off because of the music video. I mean, it's a great song. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But I, I think the music video like kicked it over the top. And it's and for me, it's one of the things that changed over the years is, you know, the, the, the way that music MTV stopped doing music videos and started putting content out. And it, for me, I stopped watching at that point. So like it, it was one of the fun things about MTV, just go sit and listen to music and watch these little vignette stories about a, a about a, 
a song and it was it was awesome and that doesn't exist anymore on that level i mean you can go watch it on devo and artists still make videos but it's not the same yeah and i've been wondering about that i was just thinking about that the other day i don't know why it's not the same because everyone still makes music videos yep and yep, but and and a lot of them are high quality with people yep. who go on to be with serious you know, directors with serious and serious directors, actors yeah. and actresses yeah absolutely so the videos are still being made and somebody's watching them so basically people are watching them it's just not us yeah i i mean i think they they go for viral factor um so they they go to see that they get streamed virally somehow because of something in it um but it's not you you can't just sit and watch it easily like i mean well let me take that back i'm i'm dating myself you can absolutely sit and watch it easily sure. i just don't right that's what i'm saying it's there we we can we can do it we just don't and i yeah. and i don't know why uh, that happened but it's true one note on hot for tea so um two notes a question and a comment i don't remember for sure but in the taylor hawkins uh tribute concerts wolfie performed what he songs did. did he perform it depends on which concert. So he did different songs in London than he did in LA. He did do Hot for Teacher though. Did he also do Panama? He did. He did Panama and Hot for Teacher, yes. And, and those are the ones that I remember seeing. And I feel like there's a reason because those songs kick ass. Oh, they're they're amazing, amazing songs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and specifically, you know, as far as rock songs go, if you yeah. want to rock out, you know, there is no, like, okay. Have you played Guitar Hero? There is no more fun song to try to play on Guitar Hero than Hot for Teacher. Really? No more fun song. No more fun song. It's it's damn near impossible. Yeah. Like especially if you play on like like any kind of like not starter level. Mm -hmm. But there is no more fun song to try to play on Guitar Hero than Hot for Teacher. And the comment I was going to make was as I was coming up to record tonight, Colleen said, "Oh, Hot for Teacher. Does that make you think of your Senora Thomas from high school?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had to tell her that no senor thomas was 1988 this album came out in 1984 so yes, it's a little yeah. before her time but um kim thomas kim young if you're listening which i'm sure you're not if you know kim thomas or kim young let her know that um she got a shout out for a hot for teacher so the the other thing i would say about this song and i didn't know this until i was doing research is the the end part the part after they say oh my god where where they uh you know mm -hmm. do the kind of close out yeah it's actually it comes from a demo song that they never released so they had this song voodoo queen that they did early on uh, and you can listen to it online if you youtube it um I'll, I'll i'll put the clip in the show notes it's it's actually a cool listen it's a, it's a cool song um it's very david lee so to to the you know the david lee of it you can kind of hear like you know you can hear him but the end of it is the end of this song so they they stole the ending from that song and they used it for hot for teacher and, and just from reading about this one album it does seem like that's a way that they work is that they have bits and pieces that they've collected yep. over time and then they find places to use them and drop them in yep. um here and there it's not even necessarily the whole song but it's just something that they use very much so very much so whether it's a lyric that david lee had or it's a, it's a synthesizer piece or a guitar riff or 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 drum bit or something yes 100 percent. that's the way that they they worked on this album it's the way they worked a lot all right anything else for hot for teacher no, um, well, just on, on the video, the voice of Waldo. Any guesses? Yeah. Any guesses on the voice of Waldo? No idea. 
SNL star Phil Hartman was the voice of Waldo on on the Hopper Teacher video. Phil Hartman, what what a shame that we we lost him so soon. Yeah, very much so. I was just talking to Colleen about News Radio, and News Radio wasn't one of my favorite shows, but every time I watched it, basically just watched it for Phil Hartman. He was uh, he's just so, so talented, <laughs> so funny. Yes. Oh, and then the other uh, Phil Hartman reference was we were talking about um, Caveman Lawyer uh, just earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a frozen caveman <laughs> lawyer. What do I know? <laughs> so, oh my gosh, Phil Car- Hartman came up twice today, in, in, well, or, or three well, times now. The shout out to to Bez, Mike Besner. Uh-huh. The the thing I might have laughed the most about in my life, it was, and and I we annoyed the heck out of John Schwartz. We were somewhere and we were watching SNL, and the Tonto Lone Ranger <laughs> and Frankenstein <laughs> came up. <laughs> <laughs> me and me and Pix could not stop laughing. We just kept laughing and laughing and laughing, and we an- we annoyed the hell out <laughs> of Schwartz. Oh God, that that's such a that's such a funny funny sketch. <laughs> Hartman doesn't keep it together at, by the end, right? No, no, it, it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So. Uh, all right, so uh, track seven, I'll wait. Do you know who co-wrote that with with Eddie? Oh, I sure do. Michael, Yamo, be there. McDonald, Yamo be there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yamo, be there. By the way, was the number ninety nine song from ni- from nineteen eighty four. So Michael McDonald uh, was present at the time. Absolutely. Well, and and Templeman worked with the Doobies. So Templeman worked with the Doobies. He worked with Van Halen and that's kind of the connection. So, uh, so the, so the quote that I saw from uh, Michael McDonald was, yeah, I was in the Doobie brothers. We made a lot of really popular albums, sold a lot of albums, but nothing like 1984 co-writing that song was one of the most lucrative things he ever did. I can, I can imagine. Yeah, seriously. Because you, you get a credit on you get one credit s- and- on one yep. eighth of the album, and it sells ten million. You make you, you make a chunk of change on that. Yep, that's just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the song. So, so, so great song. It's you know, it's a mid-tempo rock song with you know, it's got synth pop ballad type feel to it. It's kind of haunting. Just amazing song. I remember, I remember this song would be one that would come on like when when i was at you know roller skating like at, mm-hmm. at uh i don't remember the name of the oh man uh, i can't remember the name of the skateway nine skateway nine yes i couldn't remember the name of the place so i'll wait would come on and you know so- songs like like that and jump would come on and you know it's like you know th- it was the power ballad time you know you get i'll wait and you get a couple of like okay is that when you'd you find know, the a girl to go you, you, uh... you, that's when you know you you know you'd see the people da- skating around i think it was a, probably not my uh not my prime at that point so <laughs> so it's interesting so i i didn't look i i knew michael mcdonald uh, co-wrote it but did dlr uh get a writing credit on this at all you know i'm not sure to okay. be very honest i, I, I didn't mean yeah. to put you on the spot the the, yeah, the reason i, I ask I is because to me i hear this song and i hear a 5150 song I could totally hear sammy singing this and i feel like it would fit really easily into 5150 um not that it's not great here but it's sort of different than the rest of the album i feel like this one's sort of an outlier compared to the rest of the album i'm just checking to see i don't see a song was written in collaboration between van halen and doobie brothers singer michael mcdonald who was brought in by templeman when david lee roth had trouble completing the melody and lyrics 
So the band plus Michael McDonald. And I do feel like this song doesn't sound like a DLR song. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's 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 more of a rock song than it. David Lee has a lot more jazz and you know bluesy sensibilities. When you get the David Lee inspired songs, you get a lot of blues, a lot of jazz, a lot of a, a lot of that type stuff. And that kind of is contrary to what you get with Eddie mm-hmm. with the rock pop synth whatnot. So they they yeah. I think they juxtapose really nicely, but they couldn't coexist. Yeah. And, and over a long period of time too, like their collaboration yeah. really, I think ran its course because yep. there was just too much uh, of a difference of where they wanted to go. And it was time. All right. So we're almost, uh, we're getting to the back end here. So we've got track number eight, Girl Gone Bad. So you got another energetic rock song, great guitar riff. Uh, and this is one, you know, this is a David Lee Roth inspired lyric you know, he, he spurned by a, a, a girlfriend. He wrote a, he wrote a, a spurned guy song. <laughs> and, but it's cool because so David wrote the lyrics, but the music for this was composed of course by Ed. And apparently the way he did this was uh, he and Valerie Bertinelli, his wife at the time, you know, were traveling and they were in a hotel room and she was asleep in bed and he just had the song like it was coming out of him. So he like he was like humming it to himself. And then he uh, had like a little micro cassette recorder, today's iPhone, you know, voice memos. But then he had a micro cassette recorder. He goes into a closet and he starts like recording the music for this, not even him playing it, but really just him humming it to come up with the music for this. And he did this in the hotel room closet. And another song where Michael Anthony, I think, shines in the harmonies. I think you you get a lot of really nice harmonies in, on this one with Michael Anthony. This is one of those where I only realized that back in the day, I pretty much stopped after I'll Wait because I didn't remember the, these last two songs. But this one's really good. This is a good, good rock a good song. song. Yeah, I was surprised by how good it was. Anything else on Girl Gone Bad? No, nah, I think we got to bring it home with House of Pain. All right, let's do it. All right, so it is a dark, heavy song. This this is the closer that's really about pain and revenge and really kind of heavy metal-ish feeling to it, right? You've got really heavy guitars on this one. Yeah, this one is, um, it's a cool song, but... Definitely just not one of my favorites. I I think it's good to be here. Plus, it's, you know, a 30 minute album. So you need to finish it up. But I like it. But I definitely like uh, the rest of the album a little bit better. So I I love the track. I mean, for me, it's like picking amongst favorites. So I I love the track. I think it's I think it's an awesome way to close out, you know, on, on a really strong, heavy rock note. So, okay. So anything else? Any final comments on 1984 before we get to the draft i'll just say this that i had so much fun going back and listening to this album over and over again i'm gonna struggle with the song draft like i'm kind of dreading this because i'm candidly i don't have no idea what the heck to pick because i love all of the damn songs on this album and i'm at a loss for what the heck I'm going to do. So I, you, you might get uh, you might get some help from me just, you know, vapor locking on this one, Tom. But see, I, I think that you're looking at it the, the wrong way. This is all, it's all gravy because you love them all. So you can't go wrong. So think about it this way. There's no way that you're going to pick that. Fair enough. So I don't so remember. So you got, yeah, where did, where did you we? Got to pick for, you got to pick first on Led Zeppelin. 
because you picked rock and roll and I got Stairway to Heaven second because you didn't pick Stairway to Heaven first. Wow. So, uh, so I I get to pick first on 1984, which I am both excited and struggling with because I don't know what to pick first. So let's just remind the folks out there, Tone, what specifically our song draft it is. Every week, Tony and I, when we wrap up our, our track review, we like to have a little competition. So we do what we call our song draft. And every album, we take turns picking tracks from the album and we create a little team of songs. Tony picks a team of songs. I pick a team of songs. We alternate picks until each of us has a team of songs. And we'll share a link to a Google form and ask you all to vote. Who picked a better team of songs for our song draft? Tony thinks he's going to win. I think I'm going to win. And we put it out there to our fans to decide who truly wins the song draft. All right. So picking first, Bill, number one. So I've got three choices here, and that's my problem. Um, so I've been I've been like really legitimately struggling with which one of three songs to pick for for days now. That's not and, a problem. And I, that and I, means you're going to get two of your top three guaranteed. This is a win. And you know what? I'm going to change what I was originally planning. I'm going to change what I was originally planning, and I'm going to pick Hot for Teacher number one. This is why you can't go wrong because any way you slice it, you're going to get three all-timers i mean two all-timers in in the first three so you may as well take your favorite if that's hot for teacher good for you i'm gonna go jump i'm not the ultimate van halen fan i couldn't decide between jump and panama but i said you know what jump is you know really just an iconic iconic song so i went jump ultimately i it was between hot for teacher jump and panama and i figured i wanted hot for teacher in panama I would take Hot for Teacher first and mm-hmm. figured you would take Jump Second. Yeah, so, so exactly. And this is why you couldn't lose. So go through the formality of taking Panama. Panama number three. I'll wait number four. I'm going to take Drop Dead Legs. Top Jimmy. I'll take Girl Gone Bad. And House of Pain. Jump around. Jump around. <laughs> jump up, jump up and get down. Sorry, had to do that. I, I was hoping that there was you know, some way that Drop Dead Legs would come to me on that third round because that would really have uh, made me feel great about my draft. I was hoping to figure out a way to get Drop Dead Legs and Top Jimmy. I couldn't see a way. Um, so I chose Drop Dead Legs. So recap. All right. So recap. I got to pick first and I picked Hot for Teacher first with my second pick, number three overall. I picked Panama. Uh, with my third pick, number five overall, Drop Dead Legs. And with my fourth pick, number seven overall, Girl Gone Bad. My first pick, number two overall, was Jump, I'll Wait, Top Jimmy, and House of Pain. So final thoughts. I'll start us off, Bill. I liked this album better than I remembered. And even Colleen, and, and Colleen, sorry for the multiple shout outs here, but as we were listening to it over the past week or so, she knew every song up through I'll Wait, kind of like me. And she was surprised. She goes, oh, I didn't know that I knew these songs. But like, she's, you know, she's humming along to Top Jimmy and Drop Dead Legs. And she goes, I didn't even remember I knew these songs. So... This album was really, you know, important for people our age and um, really a lot of much better songs than I remember. It's not incredible art lyrically, but it's great rock music. So I was starting to tell you something before we started recording and I said, no, I'm going to save it. I'm going to I'm not going to say it. So I'm going to say it now. This might be the prep that I've been most nervous about doing. I don't want to let the album down. 
Um, so really, I, I hope I did a good job today because this album means so much to me. This album is an album that I grew up with. It's an album. It might be the album that I've listened to the most of any album ever. This and 5150. The, these, that, those two albums are probably the two albums I've listened to the most of any albums, period. And it just meant a lot to me. 13 years old through you know teenage years, kind of a shy kid. Uh, you know this this album meant a lot to me, and it really when I think of of you know like I said the the soundtrack of my teenage years, I can't not hear these songs. So I was nervous doing this. I, I didn't want to forget something. I didn't want to not have some cool things to say. Probably more than any other podcast that we've done so far, including the very first one. So like the album means a lot to me. It was a lot of fun to revisit that. I totally get what you're saying. I felt zero stress about most of these shows. <laughs> really the the show that I was most stressed about was the Taylor show because I, I love Taylor. But when uh, I go into these, I'm like, oh yeah, this is pretty fun. And this is pretty interesting, but they're not super important to me. So I get, I get what you're saying. So I think you did a great job. I appreciate that we got a chance to talk about this album and really revisit uh, Van Halen because I'd kind of forgotten how much Van Halen I'd listened to. And even though we were doing 1984, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't listen to 5150 a couple of times. And I'd welcome, you know, maybe not next season, but in a future season, I'd love to do 5150 because that's a really good I, album. I, I would... I would love to do 5115 another season. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think that's, that's a deal. We, we will definitely revisit Van Halen. Sweet. All right. So that leaves us in our last segment, which is the most important part of this show. Bill, where does this album rank in your personal top 500? Before you answer this, let's just remind everyone for his pantheon of albums, his ranking of the top 500, it's not just, it's not his ranking of favorites. This exercise is a combination of what are what does he like, but then also his own analysis of importance in music history, quality of the lyrics and the musicianship and all that. So it's it's an alchemy of things to get to this ranking, which doesn't necessarily mean it's his most favorite. Is that fair to say? Bill? And and Al, that is very fair to say, and I think you you stated it really really well, and I I, I really gravitate towards your use of alchemy there uh, because it, it really very much is, it's a feeling, it's an art, not a science. I have a practice in a spreadsheet. I'm very kind of, you know, meticulous about it and I just have fun doing it. So I have thousands of, of albums in that spreadsheet and this is one of them. And I rate this my number 55 album of all time. I feel like it firmly belongs in the top 100. I, I understand it's not on Rolling Stones list and I don't really care. Uh, it's, in my mind, a an album that had a big impact. When we talk about the the use of the synthesizers, we talked about you know specifically the push and pull between Eddie and and David Lee. I, I think this album, for when it came out in the '80s, was a very impactful album, and I think it impacted a lot that happened after that musically. I think, it, um, and I think it I think it I think it deserves consideration as a top album of all time. I agree with you. I think that the importance of this album and bringing synthesizers for better or for worse you know it it happened so it was influential and to me that's part of what rolling stone should be considering 
And if you if yep. you if you take that into account, I think it kind of doesn't make sense that this isn't on the list, but Captain Beefheart is. Exactly. Well said. Completely agree. So so on the Led Zeppelin show, we were talking about 1027 and K Rock and and NEW, and they used to do this thing called Desert Island Discs. I feel like this album would be on your desert island, even though it's number 100, 100%. So again, you, you said it right. What my rating is, is not, is what I think are the best albums of all time. Not my favorites. This is one of my favorites. If I were to pick favorites, this would, this would be in my top 20 favorite albums of all time. Maybe when we uh, are on hiatus uh, in between seasons, we'll do a, a desert island discs uh, show. I, I, you know, a desert island discs show would be very yeah. fun. Cool. Yes. Okay. So that, takes us to the end so everyone thanks for listening to another bnt excellent adventure in music our next episode will be blood sugar sex magic by the chili peppers thanks for listening everybody see you next week thanks everybody